Smith, and I'll be reading from Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, and, who was betrothed. I mean, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to a firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church family. Good morning. All right, let's just deal with the obvious. It's not Christmas. <laughs> and yet, what are we doing? Luke chapter 2, Jesus' birth. It's November. It's not even Thanksgiving, all right? Like... Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment. I have to say, in preparation for this week, it was a little bit unsettling to be uh, studying and preparing a message on the birth of Jesus Christ when you're not in the midst of all the Christmas season, but I hope what we'll see today, in many ways, that's probably a good, good thing. So first, let me start by saying uh, thank you for everybody that was praying for me while uh, I was gone last weekend. I was down in El Salvador. Uh, I went down there as part of uh, our, my responsibility, not just as our church, um, as we've cared for Mike and Brittany Peterson, uh, missionaries that we sent down to El Salvador, but my role on a, on a missions board that also helps uh, them. I went down with Matt Conway, who's one of the members of our missions committee here. And the purpose of our going down to El Salvador was really to um, go and encourage Mike and Brittany as we announced uh, this past summer that they're transitioning from their full-time mission work in El Salvador uh, to the next few years. They're going to still be down there, but transitioning to other things. So we were going down to encourage them to see the work that God had done uh, down in El Salvador. And I have to say, church, it was truly incredible. I can't get into all the details this morning. I'm just going to highlight a few uh, quick things. I don't know how many of you know this, but um, a few weeks ago, maybe about five weeks ago, uh, we actually started a, a podcast that we're calling Sunday Morning Recap that we put out on Monday. And, uh, and so Jason and I sit together, we talk about the worship service and additional things and uh, the podcast tomorrow, I'll, I'll talk some more about what we did down there. Um, but I just have to say, God has done a work in El Salvador. Mike and Brittany went down uh, to provide care for missionaries. In the process, though, um, God used them in their community of El Zante, El Salvador, to ultimately uh, bring the gospel into that community through the relationships that they had. Uh, the first time I went to El Salvador was 16 years ago. Uh, it was uh, when Mike and Brittany were just going down there for vacations. They hadn't even started their ministry uh, down there. And from the time that I went there 16 years ago till today, uh, the country and the community, community has just radically changed, just radically changed, and for the better. Um, there was a time when El Salvador had one of the highest murder rates in the entire world. Now it has a murder rate that's less than Canada, so you're, you're safer going there than Chicago, um, <clears throat> and, uh, and that's and statistically true. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, but the gospel has come. Mike and Brittany's presence has, has just really transformed that community. Um, you see up there in the left-hand corner of the picture, in El Zante, uh, Mike has worked with some organizations. They've seen what has been happening for good in El Zante, and they said, we want to support this community. How can we help? And so Mike has helped to facilitate that they're building 125 homes um, for people there in El Zante, homes that the people will actually own themselves. These are people who literally lived in vans down by the river. Uh, I mean, they were 
in lean-tos, and now they're going to have, have homes. You see in the upper right-hand corner, that's an English class on a Saturday, and those students are there, and they're passionate to learn English. Uh, this never existed in the community. Uh, that little picture on the bottom right, that's one of the board members, Trey. He's sneaking into my picture. Uh, this is a missionary home that was set up in San Salvador for uh, expectant mothers who have no place to go. And, uh, and so Mike and Brittany have helped to support. These missionaries just couldn't say enough good things about what Mike and Brittany did to encourage them in their work. And then there on the beach in El Zante, um, there's a, a current, there's a, a place called the Hope House, where on a weekly basis, 150 children from the community are being ministered to and the gospel is being shared. And this was all kind of the fruit and the labor of the ministry that Mike and Brittany have done down there and the ministry that you have supported. And uh, so God is, is great and he is good. It's not without its difficulties. It has not been without its hardships for, for Mike and Brittany in that community, but uh, I can't tell you how encouraged I was uh, to be there. So praise be to God. Amen. And thank you for your support. Um, well, here's what I want to do this morning. We're coming to Luke chapter 2. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. This is where we find ourselves. And probably what is the most famous of all the tellings in the Gospels of the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2 is the passage of scripture you hear read every year in the Peanuts Christmas story with Charlie Brown. This is that passage that's read over and over again. And as I mentioned, as I was preparing for this, it was a, it was a little disconcerting to not be in the Christmas season and, and looking at the birth of Jesus. Um, but actually, I'm glad for that church, and here's why. There's been a lot of tradition uh, that has come into the Christmas story. There's a lot of tradition that has surrounded the retelling of the birth of Jesus. Um, outside commercial forces and Santa Claus and all of those things sometimes can distract us um, from what the meaning of the season really is. And so to be able to come here even before Thanksgiving and to look at this text, here's my prayer. This is what's been all week, is that as you and I come to God's word this morning, we would, if the Holy Spirit would do his work, allow us to hear and read this story and to do it in such a way as though we were hearing it for the first time, removed from all the Christmas tradition, all the memories, all the nostalgia of the season. Because when this was first written, it was written in that way. The first people that heard this were not people that had any knowledge of Santa Claus and Christmas trees and lights and presents and all of those kind of things. In fact, the reason why we're studying it right now and right here and not in a few weeks around Christmas time is because that's where we're at in Luke's gospel. Luke has written his gospel to give us a telling of the life of Jesus. And as we come to Luke chapter 2, this is the very next thing that Luke draws our attention to. What were the events that surrounded the life of and birth of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it starts with these words, words that you're probably very familiar with. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And so this is how Luke begins. Now, when we take a moment and we look at these scriptures, I want you to notice how the, the record of Jesus' birth starts. It starts with this statement, in what? Those days. Now, if you were reading this for the very first time, what question would you want to ask? 
Which days? What are we talking about? What days are we referring to here? And, and Luke actually puts us in there because he wants us to, to understand the, the time and the place of Jesus' life. It wasn't a mythical story. It actually happened in history. And so what Luke does, he says, in those days, he's actually letting us know that the event of Jesus' birth takes place in the same time frame as the events of chapter 1. And what was the time frame of chapter 1? We'll go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5. It says very specifically, in the days of who? Herod, king of Judea. And so, Jesus' birth took place during the reign of this man named King Herod. And the interesting thing we know about Herod, and this is going to throw off your calendars, is that Herod died in 4 B.C., so Herod's on his throne. Now, most people are sitting here thinking, I thought that the year zero marked the beginning of, you know, history and time and stuff. Well, we're going to talk about calendars in just a minute. But no, Herod dies in 4 BC. So we know that the birth of Jesus had to take place somewhere before what? 4 BC. And so he's anchoring Jesus' birth here at a very specific time in the days of King Herod. But notice how he gets even more specific than that. Is it just in the days of King Herod? No, look what he says. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's fascinating when you study Jesus' birth how specific Luke gets, how intentional Luke is in setting up this historical context. He references two people that we know from archaeological evidence were undisputed historical figures. The first is one that most of us are very familiar with. His name, Caesar Augustus. Now, who was Caesar Augustus? Why is he important? Here's a, here's a statue. Here's, here's a picture of him. We don't know for 100% that this is exactly what he looked like, but it's a pretty fair representation from other sculptures of that time. Caesar Augustus was the leader of the Roman Empire. You know, at the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire was the dominant world power. In fact, I think we have a map here. You can see how the Roman Empire spread all throughout what is modern-day Europe. Uh, it went down all the way into Africa, Egypt, into part of, of the Middle East. And Julius, or I should say Caesar Augustus, was this person who for the very first time and really world history uh, dominated the scene in such a way that the Roman Empire established for really all of humanity laws and, and highways and, and security that it, that it hadn't known. Uh, he was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the first em emperor of Rome, the first person that, that the Romans actually established as a ruler over them. Things went sideways with Julius Caesar. Uh, he was eventually murdered, assassinated. And the reason why this guy, Caesar Augustus, took over was because he joined forces with Mark Antony and, and he took care of the rebels that, that had put an end to Julius Caesar. And then ultimately Caesar Augustus put an end to Mark Antony and Cleopatra and he took over the whole Roman Empire. And so this man has tremendous power. He has tremendous sway. So much so that look at what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that how much of the world? <laughs> All the world should be registered. Now, that's a bit hyperbolic, meaning that, you know, he didn't control all of the world at that time. But in the eyes of those who are writing this, the real, the known world, the most significant part, Caesar exerted power and authority over it. We know that he eventually himself 
dies a little bit later on in AD 14. And so he's the one that is in power when Jesus is first going to be born. It will eventually be another Caesar man by the name Tiberius who, who takes over. And he's the Caesar in power during Jesus' earthly ministry. But notice, it's not just Caesar Augustus that's mentioned as being there and, and, and exerting power in this time. There's another man that's being mentioned, and his name is Quirinius. He's the, he's the governor of, of Syria. Church, what does Caesar Augustus do at this time? It says in the text that he issues this decree that everyone within his empire should be registered. He's taking a census. Even to this day, we still take censuses, don't we? Nations take censuses, and Caesar Augustus, he wasn't doing anything new. For, for most of human history, when a king or a ruler was over a region, he would take a census of his population. He would do that for a couple of reasons, kind of like we do it still today. One is taxation, <laughs> you know, how many people are there? You know, how many people are part of our kingdom? And what should we ex be expecting from taxes from them? The other thing that they would do is for conscription into the army, Right? And so you want to know how many young men do I have? How, how big would my military force be if called in into action? And so Caesar Augustus is just doing what a wise leader would ultimately do. But he's in Rome, and so he's got people in different regions who are going to help him take that census. One of them is this man named Quirinius. We know that during Caesar's reign, we have actual archaeological evidence of at least three worldwide censuses, if you will, that he took. He took regional censuses as, as well. And so this was one that he put forth. And he says, I, I want to I number the people in my kingdom. And what, what Luke does here is so incredible. Because he is following the pattern of all really good ancient historians. See, some of you might be wondering the question, why doesn't Luke just tell us the year that Jesus was born? <laughs> right? Like, why wouldn't... Do, do you know... Have you ever thought, like, why doesn't the Bible just say he was born in this year? Well, the answer is actually really, really simple. Let me explain. It's because there were multiple calendars in existence at that time. There wasn't one calendar like we use today to help to mark events. In fact, the only way, if you were a good historian, that you could mark significant events was by referencing them to other significant events that were happening. And Luke goes out of his way to say, you know Caesar Augustus, yeah? You remember that census they took, yeah? You remember when Quirinius was governor of Syria, yeah? Okay, it was when those two things were happening that Jesus was born. And so Luke is actually doing as best as he can for the readers of his gospel to understand the historicity of the birth of Jesus. Because there were different calendars that were used at different times. Now, because of the birth of Jesus and, and ultimately early uh, historians, modern historians, because we didn't have all the evidence that we have today, they kind of got the date wrong, right? And so that's why our calendar, which starts where it starts, is actually about four years off. <laughs> now, we, now we know that. So we're not going to reset the calendar. We're just going to leave it like it is, okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'll take those four years. Others of you are like, I don't want those extra four years. You know, give, let them be. So here's, here's what we see Luke doing. Now, why is this important, church? Why spend time talking about this thing? Because the first thing I want you to see this morning is that the birth of Jesus is grounded in history. The birth of Jesus Christ, it's grounded in history. If I've said it once in this series in, in the Gospel of Luke, I've um, said it a million times. The Gospels are written in such a way so that you and I would have confidence in the historicity and the factuality of Jesus' life. In fact, 
notice how when Luke writes here, he's literally challenging us. He's challenging anybody who would question the historicity of Jesus' birth to say, listen, if it wasn't real, why would I tell you that it took place in the time place that it did? I'm not leaving it to chance here. I want to anchor him in real world places and times. And what's the importance of that for us? Not just today, but back then. It's because church family, we can trust the word of God. We can trust the word of God. Anyone who comes and likes to say, the stories of Jesus' life, the gospel accounts that we have here, these were things that were made up much later. These, these are myths. These are creations. You do not write about a, a historical figure's life in this way unless it was true. And, and so Luke is doing that. He's anchoring us in the historicity of Jesus' birth because church family, as we even read it 2,000 years later, we can say, we can have confidence that what we're reading is true. In fact, there were other gospels that were written, one of which I'm gonna reference later, called the Gospel of James. And when you read these other gospels, which were written 100 years or 200 years after these gospels were written, you can see how they lack the specificity. You can see how they add, uh, add to and, and create mystical elements into the story that Luke and others keep out of it because they're not true. And so when somebody comes to you and say, how can we believe these things? I say, go back and read any other ancient historical account. See how it compares to how the gospels are written. Because if you begin to question the historicity of the gospels, then you have to question the historicity of really any other ancient document. Are you tracking with me? And, and this isn't me, this is any scholar would say, there are significant significant evidences that you see that anchor this in history. And this is just one of them. That's part of the reason why I'm, I'm enjoying looking at the text this morning outside of, of Christmas. Because, you know, when you just look at this in the Christmas story, sometimes you, 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 you like to highlight some of these other things when instead it's, it's important when you read it in its context to know that Luke wrote about the birth of Jesus in the way that he did for this reason to anchor it in history. But that's not all that we see here in the text. In fact, what you find next here in the story is that by referencing Caesar Augustus, by referencing the census, by referencing Mary and Joseph going from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem, the next thing that we discover in the text, and this is really powerful, it shows us something of the character and nature of God. And I'm gonna say what it is, and then I'm gonna take some time to work it out. And that is that the birth of Jesus Christ displays God's sovereignty. The birth of Jesus Christ, it's, it's anchored in history, but the birth of Jesus Christ, as Luke is telling it, wants you to pay attention, and it wants you to see God's sovereignty on display. That when Jesus is born, all the events that surround it display the sovereignty of God. You know, sovereignty is one of those words that, that when you think about it and hear about it, typically rever, refers to like government officials, to kings who are exercising rule and authority over something. But it's not just exercising rule and authority. When I talk about God's sovereignty on display, I'm talking about his, his control over all things and in all places. Um, we try and exert sovereignty sometimes, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't because we're not God. Um, you have actually probably seen sovereignty trying to be demonstrated by, by people if you've ever seen a marriage proposal. 
All right, let me explain what I mean. If you're a guy and you're proposing to your girlfriend, typically you try and orchestrate all the events to make sure that the proposal is perfect. Some guys wing it, not the best idea, but you know, most people think about it. Uh, I had a friend and he wanted to propose to his girlfriend for some years. And let me tell you what he came to us and he said, he says, here's my idea. It's like one of the first dates I ever went on with, with my girlfriend, it was at the beach at Coronado. And so what I want to do is this. I, uh, she's going to be flying in from out of town. I want to pick her up at the airport. And I say, hey, let's go for a walk on the beach before we go and get dinner together. I said, we're going to go on a walk on the beach, but I really want to surprise her. I want to be walking along the beach and I want to come to a place where I see a rock. I'm like, oh, that looks like a cool rock. And then I want to bend down and I want to pick up the rock. When I pick up the rock, there'll be the ring underneath it. And I'll propose to her and I'll totally surprise her. Now, okay, so you're getting the, you're getting the, all right, so we all had the same feeling in the moment, okay? We all had the same feeling. But watch this, right? Because we're like, hey, um, see a couple of, you know, areas where this could go wrong. Tide being one of them, you know, robbery being the next one. Like, a lot of things could go wrong here. Lots of rocks on the beach. How are you going to know? But he's like, hey, I got this. He says, you guys are going to go with me before I go to the airport. We're going to put the rock down together. I'm going to leave, and you're going to stay there, and you're going to guard the rock. (laughs) We're like... All right, good sovereignty, good, good control plan here. We're like, fine. He says, and then, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you and I'm going to let you know when we're leaving and so that you can scoot a little bit away from the rock and just kind of hide yourselves. And so we're like, all right, good. Well, my friend exercised, you know, good sovereignty over the situation. He thought it through and sure enough, it all went off without a hitch. He picked her up, he comes over, he goes to the rock and her face when, he, when he's like, look at, this guy doesn't collect rocks at all, but he's like, hey, look at the rock. And she's like, okay. He's like, wait, let me, let me look at it. And she's like, what? I can, we're watching it because we're only like from here to there kind of a thing. And we're like, he, and you know, and then he gets down and he proposes and people are like, oh, okay. Now that's unlike my proposal story real quick where I say, well, Hannah and I used to go to the beach in, in Encinitas, and that's where we'd went. And so my idea was, hey, we're going to have dinner, I'll have roses, and we'll go on a walk on the beach, and I'll pr- propose to her on the beach in, this, in a place that we used to go. Great plan. I had my brother set up with a camera down the beach, you know, in a chair. The only thing that I forgot about was high tide. So as... <clears throat> As we went down to the beach, I had to get to a certain location so Aaron could videotape the, the proposal. The only problem was the waves were crashing up against the cliff. My brother's like tucked up in a chair and <laughs> Hannah's like, why are you taking me down here? I'm like, go with it. And you know, <laughs> and she's like up against, the, she's literally up against the cliff. I'm like, hey, I love you. You're so great. Will you marry me? She's like, yes, can we go? I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right. The best laid plans of mice and men, right? Like, so we try to exercise our control over things. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But, but check this out. Look at this, the text with me again. It says, it's a Caesar, he issues this decree, verse three, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, <clears throat> to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Do you see the specificity that he gets to here? Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, what does Joseph and Mary do according to the text? Caesar has so much power that this little family unit, they are compelled to leave Bethlehem or to leave Nazareth and go all the way to Bethlehem. Now, I'm going to show you uh, a picture of, of this. You know, I've been showing the maps. And somebody gave me a pointer. And it works great. Now you're like, I'm not going to do this every Sunday, okay? So here we go. So here's Nazareth up in the north. It's 90 miles down to Bethlehem. 90 miles. Um, and there's Jerusalem. There's Bethlehem. Everything that's happening, Gaza Strip, again, down, down there. 
So they go the 90 miles. It's about a four-day journey. Mary's pregnant. We don't know how far along she is. The text doesn't say, and we're going to dispel some rumors here in just a minute on that, but, but they make this trek. They're compelled to go that distance, a man with his pregnant wife, because of, well, because of Caesar, because to not obey him would get them in, in trouble. And so if I were to ask you the question, why did Joseph and Mary go from Nazareth to Bethlehem? The answer we give was, well, because they had to obey the census. But is that really why they went to Bethlehem? You see, Luke has been making the point from the beginning of his gospel that the Messiah who would come would be from the line of David. In fact, that's what he said to Mary. And that's what Zechariah actually proclaimed. In order for the Messiah to be the Messiah, he would have to be from David's line, from David's family. That's where Joseph was from. Now here's the thing. It wasn't just that the Messiah had to be from David's line. According to Micah 2, look at this with me. Micah 5, 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It wasn't just that the Messiah would have to be from David's line. He would have to be born where? Bethlehem. And so in order for Jesus to fulfill this prophecy, in order for him to be this promised Messiah, look, Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth, but the baby would have to be born in Bethlehem. And so what does God do? Have you ever considered this fact? There's about a thousand different ways that I can think of that God could have gotten Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in order to give birth to Jesus. One of the most obvious ones is that, well, he could have picked a couple that was actually living in Bethlehem, but he doesn't do that. And Luke specifically says, do you see how Joseph and Mary left Nazareth and made their way all the way to, to Bethlehem? Why didn't God use other, other means? Why didn't it say that they went to go visit family and, and they stayed there and she gave birth? Instead, the text brings to our attention this great grand emperor, Caesar Augustus, and the, and the wisdom of his plan to, to issue a census, to display his power and his might and his control over the entire kingdom. And yet, if you were to answer the question, how was it that Joseph and Mary actually got to Bethlehem? What was it that brought them there? Yes, it was Caesar's edict, but who put it in Caesar's heart to issue that edict for the census? God did. God was literally orchestrating all the events perfectly. He was using the most powerful man at that time as a pawn in his greater plan to get Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. That's why Caesar is so highlighted. It's God showing off his sovereignty to you and to me. You think Caesar's in control of all of this? The prophecy said that my my Messiah, my son, would have to be born in Bethlehem. In fact, what we see on display here is the wisdom of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 21.1. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he what wills. You think, you think Caesar is the one who's on the throne? You think Caesar's the one who's in control of all of this? God was using him to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. And he's not the only world leader that he's ever done this with. When you go to the Old Testament, you see Artaxerxes in Ezra 7, 21 through 26. 
You see, I love this guy's name, Tiglath Pilzer. I just, I wanted to have a son. I wanted to name him Tiglath, but Hannah, you know, we only had girls. She got lucky. <laughs> Isaiah 10, five through seven. You see Isaiah referencing Cyrus in verse, in chapter 45, one through four. God using these world leaders to accomplish his purposes. Church, when you see the birth of Jesus, it's not just a historical event, but it's also a display of God's sovereignty working all of human history into the ways that he wanted it to go for his glory. When Paul later on would reflect upon this in Galatians chapter 4, in verse 4 and 5, he would say this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time, who judges what the fullness of time is? God judges this. He brings things all together. Do you know how many lives were impacted by Caesar's decree? Do you know how many government officials and how much paperwork was required for this decree? And all of that God did to bring about, to move Mary and Joseph to, to Bethlehem. Church, our God is in control. He is in control. There's nothing that's outside his, his purview. My friend's proposal went off without a hitch. Mine, not so much. We don't have the control. Our best laid plans, when you look at my life, when you look at your life, one of the things we can't deny, even as we sung in that new song, is that God's hand is in it all. And as I often draw our attention to, our fear, our anxiety, our inability to process the things happening in the world is often due to the fact that we don't see how God can be orchestrating the things that he's orchestrating. Yet God, God took this worldwide census with the ultimate aim of moving this couple from here to there to fulfill his prophecy. If you want to know the extent of God's power and control, look no further than just what he did for his son to be born. Like I said, he could have done a lot of other things, but I see God's hand in this showing off. You know Caesar Augustus? You know, do you know that in 9 BC, because Caesar Augustus, because of the influence he had had in the world, he created these highways. He created such security because of the Roman soldiers that he placed throughout the region. When, when in 9 BC, there was an inscription that was found that, that marked the date of Caesar Augustus's birth, and it said, the birth of Caesar Augustus, a day of good news. It's the same word that you and I use when we talk about evangelism, euangelion, that they actually referred to Caesar Augustus as, as his birth as the day of good news. Little did people know what was about to come <laughs> and the good news that was there. So church, grounded in history, we see God's sovereignty. And there's one more thing, but before we get there, as you look at this story, Joseph and Mary, they move from Nazareth. They travel the 90 miles all the way down to Bethlehem. And, and let me just continue. I'm going to finish out the story, and then we're going to go back to this. It says this, and while they were there, the time came. Pay attention to that. And while they were there, that's going to be important, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, around the event of Jesus' birth, a lot of tradition has come up, and I'm going to burst your manger scene, right? I'm going I'm to burst your Christmas bubble here just for a minute, because I think some of it's important. There's some tradition versus reality when we come to the Christmas story. 
And the first tradition versus reality that I want to address is this. Like, listen, Mary did not ride on a donkey to Bethlehem, <laughs> okay? She would have walked. Nowhere in the text does it say that Mary rode on a donkey. There's this image. Um, for the women who, are, who have been pregnant here, um, and, and you're in your last trimester, um, how comfortable do you think it would be riding on a donkey all the, the way 90 miles? Right? Yeah. I've never experienced it myself, but like logic says she wouldn't have done it, the text also indicates there was no riding on a donkey. It would have made sense for her to walk and they would have taken their time. Next tradition versus reality that we got to deal with that sometimes messes with the story. Jesus was not born on the day that Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem. She was not born, Jesus was not born on the day that they arrived in Bethlehem. There's this idea that, that Joseph and Mary, she's on the donkey and Joseph's running from end to end. Let us in, my wife, she's gonna give birth. You know, it's like, it's like a husband who waits too long to get his wife in the car to go to the hospital, right? They weren't idiots, okay? They knew how long a pregnancy took and they would have understood whether or not it was safe for her to travel. In fact, the text clearly says, and while they were there, that phrase indicates a period of time that they were in Bethlehem. Are you tracking with me? She, they didn't arrive and, oh, nobody's letting us in. She's going to give birth. You know, we just got to, in fact... It's one of those gospels that was written much later, the gospel of James, that talks about the fact that they were on the road. She was on a donkey. You want to know where the donkey comes from? It comes from the gospel of James, which isn't a real gospel, okay? Like it wasn't written by James. It was written by somebody else some, some 200 years later. It says that they were on the road, and right before they got to Bethlehem, she was ready to give birth, and so she gave birth in a cave, okay? That's where that tradition comes from, not from the Bible. But, but when we think about it, she was there for, for a while, and then when they get there, here's... This one, you know, here's your manger scenes. Hey, listen, I love manger scenes, right? Like we put ours up every year, you know, our little nativity, right? And so don't keep putting yours up. But Jesus was not born in a stable either, okay? He wasn't born in a stable. And you're like, oh, oh, gasp. Yes, gasp, all you want. Here you go. I'm not saying that the conditions were great, but when the text says, let's just read it. It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Now, that is a feeding trough. That is a place that animals eat out of. I'll explain why that comes in. Wrapped him in these cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the what? In. All right. Really bad old translation of a word. <laughs> we hear that the story that says the innkeeper turned Mary and Joseph away and said, you can go give birth in a stable. Right? Have you heard that part of this? That's typically how I think about it. Okay. Does it say that the innkeeper turned him away? No. In fact, that word that's translated in isn't even the Greek word that is used to refer to an inn. In fact, now that we, over time, we've gotten more um, Greek texts and we've been able to look at things, we realize, no, this was the word that referred to the guest room in a home. It was the guest room in a home. You see, uh, a Middle Eastern home at that time in Bethlehem would have probably looked something like this, okay? Now, sometimes it was two stories, sometimes it was single story. This picture works for whether it was a single story or, or two story. But according to Middle Eastern hospitality and even at, to Jewish tradition at the time, if somebody came to your house, I would love to see this implemented today, by the way. If someone came to your house and you were a Jew and they said, we have no place to stay, you were required by hospitality to give them one night in your home and to feed them while you were there, okay? 
So this idea that when Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem and people were turning them away is just, that's not, that wasn't consistent. That wasn't consistent with the tradition at, at the time. I'm not saying that the homes weren't full, but what the text is actually saying is that there was no room for them in the guest room of the house because you'd have the home and you'd have the main central area you see there on the bottom and then you'd have a, a room where the family would sleep. You'd have a guest room where people could come because according to tradition, if somebody came to your house, you had to what? You had to let them stay there. But in the central room, here's how it would function back then. You'd have the place where you cooked. You'd have the place where you'd eat your meal. And then outside of your home would be a place where your animals could go during the day, but at nighttime when it got cold, or so that your livestock wasn't stolen from you by somebody else, where would you bring your animals? Anyone? Anyone? Inside the house. You're like, ooh, gross. You do it with your dogs, okay? Come on. You know, you're like, yeah, your dogs are walking around. You know what I mean? It's like, come on. So they would do that. They would bring the animals into that central room, and typically there was a, there was a, a lower wall and a fence that would kind of keep the area separated. And then at, in the day, they'd let the animals back outside. And because they themselves weren't filthy animals, they would sweep out everything that was there and they would live in the central part of the home. Are, are you following this, okay? So when the text says, there was no room for them in the inn and she gave birth, what it meant was that when she stayed in the home, when Mary and Joseph stayed with whoever they stayed with, they were in the central room. Yes, they were in the place that would have been close to the animals that were brought in. The text doesn't say that any of the animals were brought into the central room at that time. That's why the manger would have been nearby. And so really it was like she gave birth and then it was like she took the baby and she put it in the, in the place that would have been the most secure, the most safe. They didn't have a couch or a little bed there. So she put them in a what? In a manger, in the feeding trough. All right, now, now let's be honest. Was this the best condition to give birth in? No, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but, but sometimes we build some things around the tradition of the story that weren't necessarily accurate. In fact, there's an idea that's given that Mary and Joseph gave birth all by their lonesome by themselves. But what we're gonna see next week is shepherds come. After they hear the message of the birth of Jesus and they go to the, they go to the place where the baby was born. And do you know what it says in verse 18? Down in verse 18, it says this, when the, when the shepherds tell the people what they saw, it says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now that's not talking about the people in the village because then they go out and they, and they tell. It says when they get there, there were people with Mary and Joseph. They weren't by themselves. There would have been people there. There would have been people present ultimately to help because it says, and all who heard it, that is those who are around them while she's holding the baby, they marveled at the things that they said. And so we, 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 don't want to, we don't want to beat up too much the people of Bethlehem. It wasn't the greatest scenario for a baby to be born in, but nonetheless, this is what was taking place. Now, as, as we think about this and as we consider this, what does this all lead us to, though? What it leads us to is even though maybe it wasn't her being, giving birth to Jesus in a stable, nonetheless, when God came to earth, when God was born, he chose the people, he chose the place, he chose the scenario in which he would be delivered into the world. And it wasn't in a palace, it wasn't even in his own home, it was in a, a guest room. The, it was in, the, it was in the, the common space of a home. 
And when you think about it in those terms, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why was it that when God came down, he chose to be born where he was born into the condition that he was born? I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. And if you, if you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. <laughs> it's like you leave heaven's glory and you come down. Have you ever thought about why was he born so humbly? Why was he born in such a lowly condition? You know, the text of the Old Testament actually tells us why. You see, Jesus was born with no position of power, no prestige, and no wealth. Yet when you read Isaiah 53, you begin to understand why this took place. In Isaiah 53, not typically a passage we think of in the Christmas season, here's what it says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He, that is referring to the Messiah, would have no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we, what? Esteemed him not, the prophet Isaiah says. Why was he born so humbly? Why was he born so lowly? Well, I, Isaiah lets us know that, that that's what God said would happen. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. God chose where he would be born, how he would be born, the form that he would take. And when he chose what he did, he chose to be born with no power, no wealth, or no prestige. God said that when the Messiah came, he would not be given any earthly advantage. And the reason why it's important for us to understand that he would not be given any earthly advantage is because of the purpose of the Messiah's coming. And that's found in verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he's borne our griefs, the, uh, the prophet says, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus understood. He knew that the Father required a perfect sacrifice. One who would come as a human being who would live the perfect life that we needed to live. And so he gave himself no power, no wealth, no advantages so that no one could look at him so that when Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, when he lived in obedience to the Father, when he was stricken and smitten and beaten and became the sacrifice for our sins, it was he who did it all. No one can look at Jesus and say, well, he had something that I didn't have. He had this in order to accomplish what God sent him. No, in fact, the author of Hebrews says this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Church family, Jesus Christ began and lived his life in humility because that is what was necessary. He was born into a lowly estate 
because that is what, what was necessary. He had to come humbly for you and for me because we needed someone to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father who could not claim any advantage for, for himself. And so all this vulnerability, this picture of baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling and laying in a manger, he chose it and he chose it because he knew that was the humility that was necessary to redeem us. In fact, that's not me saying those things. It's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 5, he says this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look at our Savior, we see these amazing things happening. We see the sovereignty of God over the most powerful emperor in the world, Caesar Augustus, bringing about his census to have the Messiah born where he was supposed to be born. And we see the, whole, we see the lowly and humble Jesus taking on this birth in the conditions in which he was born, all because God said that when the Messiah would come, you and I would not look at him as anything that was special, anything that was much, and he wouldn't be anything much because he would take no advantages for himself to do the work that God sent him to do, which was to live the perfect life for us and to die the sacrifice in our place. And so this is why he was born that he was. But I'm gonna close with this. And this is worth you just holding on with me for just a few more moments. While it was absolutely necessary for him to come in humility, to fulfill what God said needed to be done, I want us to leave this morning with a very clear image of Jesus. You see, most of us picture Jesus as he was. When we think about Jesus, we think about his humility laying low in a manger. We think about his perfect life live in poverty as just a, a carpenter. We see him on the cross taking on all of our sins. And those images of Jesus are not wrong. But when you and I read the Christmas story, in any of the stories of Jesus' life, we must realize that those things are in the past. And that is how Jesus was then. He still has compassion and mercy for us, but do you know what Jesus looks like today? You see, Philippians goes on to say these words. And you know these words, but now I'm gonna show you what they actually look like. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God had highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He ain't a baby in the manger anymore and he ain't on the cross anymore. He is the risen, glorified Savior of the world. And so now today he has a name above every name and you might think, well, what does that look like? How should I really picture Jesus? We don't have to guess at it. You want to know what the baby lowly in the manger, who he is actually today? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. When John, one of Jesus' disciples, had the vision of today, what it looks like to see Jesus exalted, as Paul says in Philippians, this is what John saw in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. This is how Jesus appeared to John. He says this, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. On turning, I saw 
seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. So somebody who looked like a human, he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of what? Fire. His feet were burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Do you know who he's looking at right now? It's Jesus. And when I saw him, look at what John does. I fell at his feet as though what? Dead. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, right? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. When he saw him, Jesus in his resurrected glory, this is what he experienced. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Church family, that is Jesus today. Don't leave him in the manger. Better not leave him on the cross. Don't just take him as resurrected. He is glorious. And when John saw this Jesus, he fell on his face because this is who he is. And so make no mistake, Jesus Christ began and lived his life in humility because that was necessary. But make no mistake, he reigns today in what? Glory. He reigns today in glory. See his humility, but see his exaltation and may our hearts in response to seeing all of this be like John's, that we fall down and worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is none like you. Lord, even as those words leave my mouth, I seek your forgiveness because I know that my life is not always lived as though that were true. And I know I'm not the only one here. And yet, Lord, that is why your son came because he was the only one who lived their life as though that were true. And he didn't take any power or prestige. He didn't receive anything that would make it easier for him to live that life of obedience. Instead, he faithfully looked to you in the midst of poverty and humility. And, and Lord, you've exalted him now. He is our savior. He's the only means by which we, we can have new life. And today he reigns and he rules. And so Lord, help us to have a bigger picture of him. Help us never to leave Jesus in the manger leave him on the cross, in the tomb. Lord, help us to embrace that what he came to do was one and it was done and forever. He is worthy of our praise and he transforms our life. And so help us to live in light of these things, we pray and we ask and all God's people said, amen, amen.